Good morning again, everybody, and uh, we're going to continue in Genesis today. We're going to be in chapter um, 25, and uh, look at the, it'll be the birth of Esau and Jacob, but it's also the death of Abraham. It's, a, it's kind of a transition chapter, um, and, you know, it makes me think of uh, the fact that, like, so growing up, I, I listened to a lot of, uh, like, classic rock, right, like, uh, 60s, mostly more, more, more 70s. My dad went high school in the 70s, so a lot of the stuff that he listened to, he passed on to us, and like, and so I listened, grew up listening to that kind of stuff. And uh, and you know, I, I know the history. I wasn't there, but I know the history that like that was the music of rebellion, right? That was like the music of you know that your parents yelled at you to turn that noise off and that kind of thing. Like it was it was a, kind of a, a music of symbol of kind of like being rebellious and, and that kind of thing. And, and I think it's, it's interesting that now it's being used to sell prescription drugs. <laughs> Is that weird for you? Like, I think that would be kind of weird. I think it's weird for the artists, probably. They, you know, they wrote it, they were going like, yeah, stick it to the man. And now they're like, yeah, give the man some money for these drugs. But... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing that happens is that the, you know, as, as things that were young and, and, you know, upstarting get older, they become just the norm. And, and that's kind of where we're at in this chapter, right? Abraham, when we started with Abraham, he was this young, <laughs> he was young, we started as he was 75, but, <laughs> but when you die when you're 175, that's relatively young. So, Right, but he's this, he's this guy who's setting off from his father's house. He's going to you know, go and take the promised land that God has told him to do. And he's kind of setting off. And he, he's, the, he's the young guy in that, in that story. He's the start-off kind of thing. And now we're at a point in the story where he's old. He's, he's getting ready to pass on. And there's a new generation coming up behind him. Right, he has this son now. The son that was promised him has now been born. And so it's kind of this transition moment where... Um, now it's Isaac's turn to take over and to uh, s- set off on his own path and, and follow God's commands as, as, he, as he has given them. So we're going to start off with the death of Abraham, looking at verses 1 through 18 of chapter 25. It says this, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Madon, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadon. The sons of Dadon were Ashurim, Latushim, and Lumumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubine, Abraham, sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, son Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaioth, 
the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetor, Napish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and, their, and, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over and against all his kinsmen. Try to hold in your excitement. I know that was a just a... <laughs> That was just a roller coaster of a, of a passage. I know on the surface that sounds like, that's the part that like when you're reading Bible by yourself, you skim, you skim, right? You don't, that's not, there's not a lot going on there, seemingly. But there is a lot there, there is a lot there. And even in the normal, everyday things that are being listed, there, it's saying a lot. And so we're going to get into it right now. Um, first of all, we see Abraham has a second wife and she has... Uh, other sons, right? Abraham had six other sons, um, and, and they're significant. And that's significant because God did tell him that he would be the father of many nations. And that is true even if it was just through Isaac's line, and that is the line that is important, but it's also true that he here is, is actually fathering other nations. And, and most of them we don't see too much in, the, in Scripture moving forward, but the Midianites we do, Midian, the sons of Midian, Midianites, they're going to play a role as we move forward in the Old Testament. Um, but it's also significant that he says that he gave all he had to Isaac. Isaac is the promised heir. And before his death, he sends his other sons away with, with gifts. They go to the east. <coughs> and then we get this passage, this, this line in here that I think is really significant. And, and as we think about our own lives and our own legacy and the things we want to do, doesn't this, this verse... Um, in, uh, in verse 8. Doesn't this sound great? Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's the way to go out, right? That's what we all want. That's, how, that's the, the way we'd like to go. He's satisfied that God's promises had begun to be fulfilled in him, and he could, he could die knowing that God was working out his plan. God had fulfilled promises to him. There was still a long way to go. His people had not possessed the promised land yet, but he can be confident that God is doing something in him, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, which we know is a fulfillment of that, is, of that promise that God made to Abraham, is Jesus Christ. That he could be confident that God is doing something, and that his, just his time in that is done. We also see that Abraham, and Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, in, in the cave that he had purchased, which we looked at a few weeks ago, um, where, where Abraham wants to, wants to buy this land to, to bury his wife in the dead center of the promised land. He wants to know that he knows that God will fulfill a promise to his people, so he wants to be buried with his wife in the middle of the promised land. It's a statement that he believes that, God, that his people will possess this land, even though they just own this one little field at this time. The other thing significant about that, and we can see right in there, that Ishmael and Isaac buried their father together. Right? They were not best friends. They were not best friends. They, there would be some animosity there. There were some differences because Ishmael had been sent away. He was the firstborn, but he had been sent away, illegitimate son uh, of Hagar, and, and he gets sent away. And yet they can still come back together and, and bury their father. That says something about 
the man that Abraham was. Right, that even with all of the, the trouble and the, the relationship that he had with Ishmael, Ishmael still desired to come back and honor his father and bury him along with Isaac. They were able to set aside their animosity to bury their father together. If you think about just how contentious and, and wild that family history is, the fact that that was possible is significant and says something about who Abraham was. And it says something to us about our own family conflicts. You know, a lot of us do have conflicts within, within, within families and, and difficulties. And think about that, th- what they were able to overcome. And it maybe gives some hope for you that, hey, maybe you would be able to overcome it. Maybe you could set aside differences and, and reconcile with family members that have been estranged. We also see um, Ishmael's descendants here. They don't, they don't fe- feature prominently in the Old Testament going forward. Um, you're not going to look up these names in, in, the, in, in future um, passages. They don't come up, really. It's not a, a big thing. Um, but there are some things to note about it. First of all, that there are 12 sons, and this is going to correspond with Jacob's 12 sons, which uh, is, is the other line, is Isaac's line. And so there are 12 sons that end up coming out of them as well. Um, in in extra-biblical sources, so in in, in, in documents from the time that are, that are not in the Bible. Um, these names are, are associated with, um, with Arabian tribes and with the spice trade. So they do occur in other, in extra-biblical sources, which is significant because it gives Bible legitimacy, right? Not that it needs it, but for, for anybody from the outside who's going like, well, is this true? Is the Bible true? People do ask that question often. Um, these kind of things, these lists of peoples and names and all that kind of thing, gives legitimacy to it. It makes it, it's not a myth. These are real people. You can go see them. You can go visit these tribes. They existed at the time. And especially given the fact that when it was written, that would have been highly possible to actually go see these people and see that it was real and confirm family history. These things actually happened. But there's a bigger reason why Ishmael is significant and why the fact that he has all these children is significant. Remember, he and his mother, when he was around 17 years old, are sent away by themselves. They're given some goods, they're given some things, but they're sent away and she is distraught at that, at that prospect. But they're able to survive and then we see here even thrive. They end up, end up having these nations that come from Ishmael. And that is significant because God is fulfilling his promise to Ishmael that he he had promised to make Ishmael a great nation. Just like Isaac, he had made that promise. We can see that in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20, where he says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Right there, God promised that he would have 12 sons, and he did have 12 sons. Now, is that significant for the big promises of God, for the fact that God had told Abraham, through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that he had told Abraham that your people will possess this land? Does this promise to Ishmael matter at all? Maybe not in terms of the big story of what God is doing, but it matters that we see, we get to see God fulfill his promise. God made this promise to Ishmael, and it was fulfilled. (coughs) He cares about Ishmael, even though he's not a part of the bigger plan. Even though we might say he was a mistake. 
right? We would say that it wasn't right for Abraham uh, to subvert God's plans and, and take this concubine, take Hagar, and, and try to go around and get an heir that way. We would say that that was wrong. That was not God's intention. God's intention was for him to stay with his wife only and, and only have an heir through her. So was Ishmael a mistake? Well, maybe, but God redeemed that mistake. God redeemed that mistake and even made promises about who Ishmael would be and fulfilled them. And this tells us something about our own problems. I think this is true for us that God will fulfill his promises whether or not they're part of the, of the larger plan. He'll fulfill his promises. He is just as, as he'll fulfill his promises he's made to Abraham. And this can be true for us as well that God cares about our own problems. God cares about us no matter how small or insignificant they may seem. I think sometimes, sometimes we don't pray about the things that are bothering us or things that we have because we think the problem's too big for God. We think, well, there's no hope for it. We don't think it can change. We don't think there's any way to help it. And so we don't pray because we think, well, God can't do anything about it. But I actually don't think that's as common because most of us do think that God is powerful. Most of us do think that he is capable of doing anything that's not as common as the fact that we don't pray because we think our problem is too small for god to worry about right it's not worth bothering him you know he's got a lot of big things going on i don't want to bother him about my little thing but that's often how we feel we go well this isn't that significant this is a small little thing this is not a big deal i I don't want to bring it to god but even that even that mindset presumes that God is not as big as he is. Right? We presume that God is limited. We presume that God doesn't care about every little thing. We presume that God doesn't care about us and our problems. But he does. And he will intervene. We can see that in Ishmael. We can find that hope in Ishmael that Ishmael was not a part of the plan. He was not a part of, of God's bigger plan for redemption and history and all those kind of things. He wasn't part of it. He was a mistake, and yet God made promises to him, fulfilled him, loved him, cared about him, prospered him. That should give us hope as well. We see this reiterated by by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, where he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying instead of worrying about every little thing, seek God's kingdom. Seek to put God in charge of your life. Give your problems to him. Romans says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a difficult concept for what does that mean to seek his kingdom? Well, it means seek that his kingdom would be true in your life, meaning that he would be king over your life. Right, the things that are necessary for a kingdom to exist is people in a place experiencing the presence of God as king. Right, that's the kingdom of God. People in a place experiencing the presence of God as king. And so we're always a people, we're always people in a place, and we can choose to make God our king, and then the kingdom of God exists in that place. We can give our cares to him, give him authority over our lives. All right. Point number two, two nations. <coughs> Verses 19 through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old 
when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so this is the next generation. They're moving forward. They're going to have children. They're going to have offspring as well so that the generations will continue to go. But we see there's a problem, right? Rebekah also had difficulty conceiving. We get verse 21 right there, right, where we see that she had difficulty conceiving. And they prayed together. Isaac prayed for Rebekah. They assumably prayed together as well. And God granted their prayers. It's one verse, but if you look at the dates, if you look at the, the, the ages that they give them, that's 20 years. That's 20 years. Their struggle is only five years shorter than Abraham's. That we took chapters to go through, of chapters of time of where we see them struggle, we see them go through it, we see them try these alternatives, and yet we get one verse of, they had trouble conceiving, she's barren, and, yet they, and then they prayed, and then it happened. But that's 20 years in one verse. Their experience is, point, is explained so much more briefly, but doubtless it was just as difficult. right? And, and it's important that we note that, that Isaac didn't make the same mistakes as his father. right? His father had resorted to this surrogacy, this you know, ancient uh, surrogacy where just have, you know, go ahead and, and get another woman. He tried to go around and subvert God's plans. Isaac didn't do that. Right? He instead persisted in prayer. He decided to instead just continue to pray for his wife to conceive and didn't let up for 20 years. That's a long time. That's a long, long time. Following, following God's way and persisting in prayer and being patient and waiting on the Lord is a lot simpler Right, there's a lot less to write about when that's the way you do it. But it's much more powerful and it's much more the pattern that God wants for us. Right? We can see that, that it is fulfilled, uh, but it is difficult. It, it takes 25 years. And oftentimes that's true for us as well. Where we could say, you know, take, take a story from our faith journey and sum it up in, in one sentence and say, like, this is how this is what happened to me, this is what I did, this is what I prayed for, and then eventually this happened. And it's a long journey, but you can sum it up in one sentence. That's what we have here, right? Certainly if you talked, if we could talk to Isaac and, and Rebecca about it, doubtless it would be a much more in-depth discussion, right, of, of all the ways and, and the, the roller coaster that that felt like for them uh, of hope and despair and 
uh, and just persisting in that. We also see that then once they do get pregnant, it's not an easy pregnancy, right? Once, once Rebecca gets pregnant, it's a, a tumult in there. It's, it's very difficult. Um, this movement must have been so intense for her to ask God about it. Um, and it's also important to note, they didn't know it was twins. But they didn't know it was twins. Because back then, they, they maybe would have gone like, well, maybe it could be. But they don't have ultrasounds. They don't know necessarily what to do. They don't know about that. And we see in verse, in verse uh, 24 confirming that, it, that they didn't know, right? It says, when her days of birth to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins. They didn't know. So this prophecy that they're given would have been pretty confusing. Right? When they thought two nations were within your womb, what does that mean? Are there going to be two peoples that come out of it? What's happening? I don't, you know, it's confusing for them. But they don't, they don't know quite what to do. But the other thing we see here is that it's prophesied that the younger will be weaker but will rule over his older brother. Older and stronger brother, right? That prophecy that says, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, right? Those are parallels so that the first one is with the same, is with the, is paired together, and the second thing is paired together. So the, <coughs> the stronger is the older, but yet will serve the younger, other one, weaker one. So very confusing prophecy. I don't know that if you were in her position, you're just going, God, why is my pregnancy so difficult? I don't know that you would be like, oh, thanks for the answer. Right? It's conf- it would be very confusing. Like, what does that mean? What is happening to me? And, and, and what could this possibly mean for me? But we see that this idea of, of choosing the less likely or the, the less likely being the one to be dominant, right? the weaker, the less likely, the younger to be the dominant one. This is a theme that's throughout Scripture. Right? Th- this idea that, that God chooses the unlikely. We even talked about this a few weeks ago. The idea that God chooses the unlikely, that not what would not be the, the first, not would be our first choice. Right? That he chooses that person first. Right? Whoever would be last picked at kickball. That was his number one draft pick. Right? That's who he chooses. This is a theme throughout Scripture. This is something that God does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, we read these a few weeks ago. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that it's not about us. He chooses to use people that he can be confident, that he can work through, that he can demonstrate his power through. We also see that the Apostle Paul references this prophecy when he's talking about election, the, the doctrine of election. So Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, says, When Rebecca conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done any, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God already had plans for Jacob and Esau before they were even born. Before they were even named Jacob and Esau. Before they even had names, before their parents knew there were twins in the womb, God had plans. God knew them. God had plans for them. God had chosen Jacob from his mother's womb. So there's a tension there. There's a tension that we experience anytime we talk about God's will and and our will and, and how much free will do we have, right? And so that's a difficult thing to, to understand because we feel like we have free will. It's like we have some say in things. We feel like we're making decisions. But then how much, if God is in control, how much does he control? And so if you'd like to find the answer to that, go to your community groups and talk about it. <laughs> I'll read this from, this from a commentary that, that it, it's, in, it's in your... Uh, It's in the study guides if you'd like to check it out. But he says this, Notice in all of this that God offers no explanations and certainly no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human convention. His sovereign grace will will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact whether we understand it or not. God's purposes are set as they are incomprehensible. I would say in general in that that's I think an important thing for us to keep in mind that God is sovereign or that God is in control that God can do whatever he wants and the fact that we feel sometimes that we can question it is the highest form of arrogance or the idea that we can go like well God I don't know if you understand what you're doing I don't know if you have the right to do this of course he does of course he does so then finally we see the birth happens. We see there are two, two boys are, are, um, come out and they are very different. Or we have Esau, first of all. His name uh, means like covered or hidden because he is so hairy uh, and, and probably redheaded. Uh, although it's a little bit confusing whether it's talking about the hair or the skin. He may have had just like kind of red, red skin. Uh, but, but he's all covered and hairy. And, uh, and he's a very manly man, right? He's a hunter. He's going to go out. He's going to kill some animals. And he's going to barbecue them for his dad. And he's, just, uh, he's the manly man. And you have Jacob. And Jacob uh, means uh, take by the heel, right? Because he was holding his, father's, his, his brother's heel as he comes out. Um, but it also uh, kind of comes to mean, or it can mean, he cheats. <laughs> right? So it's like, this guy is not the guy, right? This is not the number one. He's, and he's, uh, he's very, um, he's indoorsy, right? He's indoorsy, he's a quiet, uh, he likes to come with his mom, he likes to cook, he likes to kind of stay in the house, and he's, he's bookish, we might say. Like, he's, he's not this typical, prototypical, like, manly man, right? He's this, he's the, he's in, inside boy, um, and so there's this, dark, there's this sharp contrast, right? And Esau is the elder. He is the one that, that would be the heir because he came out first. All right, so now let's look at Esau's birthright. So he has the birthright. It's his, it's his by right. And so um, we're going to see what happens with that. Verses 29 through 34. 
Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. You assume that's what he talked like. <laughs> Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so this is a weird story for sure. It's a, it's not, it's, it's a very interesting, right? It's a very, like, it doesn't seem like it should actually matter. It doesn't seem like that should be a real thing. It seems like something that just passed between two brothers, not serious, not a big deal. Why, why is this in the Scripture? Why is this even of consequence? Well, first of all, we have to think about what did the birthright entail? Right, the birthright entailed a couple things. It entailed a, a monetary advantage, right? So there would be guaranteed a certain portion. We see this in, in moving forward in Deuteronomy. It's actually legalized, officially legal, in, where in, in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 21, where it says, If a man has two wives, the one loved the other, the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference of the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge his firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Right, so that is just a law establishing the fact that it's definitely the firstborn, whoever is the actual or the firstborn, he will get double what everybody else gets. That's Moses legalizes it. The second thing, he, he gets special recognition during life. Right? During life, the firstborn gets special recognition in this culture. They're, they're, they are seen as the heir, talked about as the heir, treated differently than any younger siblings. <coughs> and then thirdly, in this case, they're the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? They're the line through which God is going to fulfill these promises he made to Abraham. So it very much matters who has the birthright, who has the, the birthright of the firstborn. So the question that we have is, what was so bad about Esau's acceptance of this deal? Or why is this so bad? Because it doesn't seem serious. Right? If you were in the room and you witnessed this, and then afterward I asked you, did Esau really sell his birthright to Jacob? You would say no. Right? You would assume, no, this is just brothers goofing around right? This is brothers goofing around. This is Jacob just trying to, you know, stir up his brother and going like, oh, you want my stew so bad? Well, then give me the birthright, right? And then like, okay, all right, yeah, I give it to you. What's the difference? I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. You don't, it's not, it doesn't seem serious, right? It doesn't seem serious. So the fact that they're going to be held to it, right? Esau's going to be held to this. It's surprising that that's the case. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17 might, might help us out here. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And the th- I think the thing we see here is that Esau doesn't take what is sacred seriously. Right? This was something to be taken seriously. This was something that mattered, and he neglected it. He did not take it seriously. It wasn't a big deal to him. He as they say, despised it, right? He didn't, he didn't bother with it. It wasn't something that was important to him. He didn't take care of it. He didn't take the responsibility of the birthright seriously. And so it, it mattered that he, treated it this, that he treated it with such disdain or with, with such kind of just callousness and, and not taking it seriously, frivolously. All right, let's finish up with how should we then live Based on these passages today, what should we do? How should our lives change? How might our our thoughts and our hearts and our actions change as a result of of today? Number one, (coughs) believe that God cares about you and your problems, however insignificant. Don't be afraid to take your your problems, take the things that happen in your life, the, the worries that you have, to take them to God. Don't neglect it. Don't think that it doesn't matter. And don't think that it doesn't matter enough to take it to somebody else as well. You know, to tell a a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, about it and ask for prayer about it. Ask them to pray about it. Oftentimes, again, we think that it's not worth bothering someone else about. But we're here, we're actually commanded to bear one another's burdens. It's actually commanded that we bear one another's burdens. So if you don't give your burdens to, to your brother or sister in Christ... You're not allowing them to fulfill that command. Not, not allowing them to fulfill the command to bear your burdens. That's their command. So that's a good thing to do in your community groups, to bring up during prayer time. Uh, just uh, like, hey, here's what's going on with me. It's a good thing that you can do. We have a prayer team that is up front here after the service. They want to pray with you. Right? That's why they're, they're there. That's why they said, yes, I'd like to join the prayer team. Not because they're going like, I'll come up but I hope no one comes up. I hope no one, no one wants to be prayed for. That's what they want to do. Right? That's what they, they signed up for. So they're, they're here to pray with you. Don't think that anything is too small. Number two, persist in prayer rather than resorting to your own devices. Right? We saw that with Jacob and, and I mean, we saw that with Isaac and Rebecca where they just they persisted in prayer for 20 years praying that God would give them a son. And he did. It's easy for us to, to decide, well, I better try to just take this into my own hands. I better decide to do this my own way. God's not here for me. God's not working it out. Be patient and persist in prayer. Number three, treat what is sacred appropriately. Right? Take the sacred seriously. So then what is that? What, is, what are the things that we would consider sacred? Well, I got four things here for you today. There's obviously bigger than that, but this is a, a way that I thought... Um, would be a good way to introduce, uh, we're, we're kind of revamping some of our purpose statements and that kind of thing. Um, 
really just rewording them a little bit to, to be a little clearer. Um, and so if you've been around for a while, you may have remembered the, 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 the four things uh, learning, we're, that we're learning people, loving people, worshiping, and witnessing. Those are great. This is a, just another way of saying the same thing. So that at Discovery Hills, we would say that at Discovery Hills Church, we're committed to these things. Number one, the Word of God. Right, we want to take it seriously. What God has said in, his bio, in, in, in the Scriptures, in the Old and New Testament, 66 books, is, is sacred. It's important. It matters that what is, is said there, that we view it as, inac- as, as uh, without error, is inerrant, that it is, is what God meant to say. And, and it matters that we follow it, that we believe it in all that it teaches, all that it instructs us. Number two, the people of God, right? People are sacred. God's, God's people are sacred. Jesus calls the church his body, his own body. It's the body of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. He is our head. And so his people matter, and it matters how we treat one another. That we take this seriously, that we take things like disunity seriously, that we take the fact that like he has called us to love one another and be united in following him seriously. We take that as holy because it is what he wants us to do. He calls us his body. That matter, that's a big deal. Number three, the mission of God. Or we're committed to the mission of God, and that's a sacred thing that God has given us a mission that he's given us partnership with him of taking his gospel to the world, taking the message of the world, of telling people that there is hope because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose again on our behalf on the third day and gives us his Holy Spirit that we might live an abundant life and eventually go and live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns. And that mission matters and we need to take it seriously and believe that he has called each one of us to take that gospel to the world. And then lastly, number four, the glory of God. That we take the glory of God seriously, that, it, that all praise, all glory, all worship goes to him. That he is the one that we worship. That he is the one that gets the credit. That it's not about us, it's not about me, it's not about any, any one of us, but it's about him. And that we take him seriously, and we take his worship seriously. That's, just, that's an example. There's, probably more, there's certainly more things we could say that are what, what is sacred, what is God deemed sacred, but I think those are big categories, that we're committed to the word of God, the people of God, the mission of God, and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We can come together, open your word, your holy word, God, the, the, the words that you have given us to tell us about who you are. And we can, can come together and, and worship you and lift you up, God. Your glory is what we want. We want you to get the credit. We want you to get the glory because you are the one who has conquered. Jesus, you are the one who died and rose again for us that we might live an abundant life, that we might live for you. So Father, as we sing this closing song, we pray we would sing it as though we are singing directly to you, as though we were lifting you up, that your presence would fill this place right now as we celebrate and remember that glorious day when you came for us, when you changed our life, that each one of us would be reminded of the fact that we have been redeemed by you, that we have been rescued by you, that you love us 
so much. Each one of us. Not one of us is insignificant in your eyes, but you view us as someone who matters. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.